Pawpaw Biggie was always up before everyone else in the house. Um, so I have no way of knowing exactly when he would get up. Um, but he got up very early, uh, somewhere around four. He, he was a farmer, and he was raised by farmers, and he just didn't believe the sun should ever beat a man up. So he was my dad's father, and uh, he, he ended up becoming a pastor, and he prayed a lot, an awful lot. He would pray in the mornings and throughout the day. And one of my fondest memories of Paul Paul Biggie is hearing him pray. And I can still see him and hear him. And he almost always would begin his prayers, Master. Um, it was his way in his particular culture of recognizing who Christ was and who he was. You can learn a lot about someone by listening to their prayers. A couple of days ago, I was in a conference call with a group of pastors and scholars from around the world. Um, We're hosting a conference in San Francisco, this group of us, come in November. And we were meeting for, we're having a Skype conference to talk about this. The head of the group is a guy named Craig Bartholomew. He's a a very well-known scholar. He's written a a number of influential books. He's known around the world. And at the end of it, he prayed. And I've had... Craig's my friend. He was my supervisor when I was doing my research. And so I've had a lot of opportunities over a number of years to pray with him in various places in this world, in various situations. And almost every time Craig prays, he asks God to renew the academy, the academic field. It's his corner of the vineyard where he labors. And he's broken over the darkness. And almost every time I'm praying with him, Craig asks for the light of Jesus Christ to bring renewal to the university setting. This is his heart. And it comes out of him. And it's his life's work. My point is that people often give themselves away in their prayers. I've prayed with people in the craziest of sittings, partly because of this collar and lots of, you know, other reasons. I prayed with a guy who was facing the, um, uh, he, he was in jail for murder, capital murder, and it wasn't turning out good for him. And uh, I, I just, it's, it's crazy, but it, when you pray with people, you hear their hearts. Now, our passage of scripture this morning that, that Katrina read to us is a prayer Paul, he's writing this letter to the Corinthians and he does a similar thing with the Corinthians that, he's, that he does in almost all of his letters. He follows the initial greeting from Paul to whoever, greetings, with a prayer. And so here we look at Paul's prayer this morning for the church of God that's in Corinth. And it's remarkable, this, this prayer. And as God leads us to listen for his voice through this passage of Scripture... I believe that there are four things that God is wanting to say to our church. I think there are four things in this prayer that God is calling us as a church to. Number one, let's start at the beginning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul thinks of the Corinthian church, 
he says here he has a habit of giving thanks. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God given you in Christ. He has a habit. He's always doing this. It just is something that he's kind of addicted to. And this is really a remarkable thing. Because if you've read this letter before, the church in Corinth was a mess. It was a disaster. There were problems all over the place. There were divisions. They were fighting. There was heresy. One of the church leaders apparently was shacking up with his stepmom. And he was a leader in the church. And he's writing to this church that is the source of a great amount of suffering in Paul's life. This is not a perfect church. Not even close to the perfect church. This is like a toddler going crazy. It's like a teenager going wild and they're making videos of it and embarrassing them for the rest of their lives. This is the church that Paul says, when I think of you and I pray, my reflex is to give thanks. Now that's a remarkable thing. And, and, and as we listen to this prayer, it's, it's astonishing that gratitude is his reflexive attitude. You see, because the practice of giving thanks doesn't really have anything to do with positive circumstances. The practice of giving thanks has to do with your character, not the situation. You see, giving thanks is a practice. It's not a feeling. It's a discipline. It's a choice. Paul was thankful for God's work, God's grace among the Corinthians. And because his focus was on God's strength, Paul would have these outbursts of praise to God. Because he was focused on God and God's gift and God's goodness and God's grace, he had this habit of outbursting in grace and thanks to God for his faithfulness. He had this regular habit of giving thanks. Do you? Do you have a habit of bursting out in thanksgiving? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says, Make every effort... To supplement your faith with virtue. You've got to work at this. Giving thanks is something that you and I have to make every effort to do. He didn't say, I feel thankful. He says, I have a habit of expressing thanks. You and I must make every effort to add to this faith. The faith we have in Jesus Christ as our Lord. We must make every effort to add to our faith the activity the practice, the discipline of thanksgiving. And thanksgiving can be very hard. And if it was ever hard, it was hard in this moment for this man with this group of people. Thanksgiving can be incredibly difficult. There are things we can go through in life that just don't make this easy. But it's good. The first verse that Leah read us in, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. And Psalm 118, the first verse and the last verse of the psalm, commands us to give thanks to God. Command is a, thanksgiving is a command. It's a good thing. It's a habit of godly people. So we work at it over and over. And like Paul, eventually, your choice to give thanks will become a habit of giving thanks. And that habit will produce the fruit of being a gracious person. Thanksgiving can become second nature to you. 
It can become a habit for you too. Because Thanksgiving has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has to do with your character. And your character is determined by your habits. And your habits are determined by your choices. As you choose to give thanks, the Spirit of God comes into your life and helps you and forms your character into a thankful character. And this produces fruit. Thanksgiving can become second nature. You can become the kind of person who in the most brutal of circumstances is more thankful than negative. That can become second nature. But in order for that to become second nature, I mean, look at what Paul is doing. It's quite astonishing. In order for this to happen to you, Paul was once a rageaholic. He was on his route to murdering Christians. That was the life he lived. And now we look at him a few years later and he's got the fruit of thankfulness in his life. Even in difficult circumstances with people who in the old Paul would have just taken care of business. But in order for this to become your second nature, you must continually deny your current nature. When you feel negative stuff, when you feel complaining come up, you've got to shut it down and choose to give thanks. You've got to ask people in your life to hold you to account for acting in inappropriate ways. We, now, we can reverse this. The opposite is true. Being negative is a wicked, evil sin. It's evil. It is destructive. Being negative is a character problem. It's a habit. And it will bend your character every bit as much as gravity will bend a wooden board on top of a fence. As the years go by, that board will be bent. And and you you choosing to be negative time and time again becomes a habit that shapes a character. Getting upset by little things and giving in to your current nature, your flesh, your desire to complain and to gripe and to be negative. Now, let's apply this to the church. If we do not make giving thanks a habit, if we as a church do not make a habit out of giving thanks for our church, even when it's not great, even when there are no real treasures... Even when our church is more characterized by weakness than by faith, by problems, by pettiness, by smallness, even if our church is filled with difficulties, if our habit is to complain, then we will limit the growth of our church in the grace of God. Every church is full of saints and sinners. Every one of us is a saint and a sinner. And we're going to encounter both sides of one another. In fact, Corinth really isn't that different from any modern church. (laughs) Even those churches that have glowing reputations. You find someone, you meet someone who's up on the inside, who knows the church well, and you can get all the dirt. That church is filled with every weakness and every sin And too often, dissatisfied church members leave this church naively thinking that they can find a better church. When Paul looks at the Corinthian church, he sees them as they are in Christ. And he looks at who they are in Christ before he looks at anything else. Now, Paul does go on in the letter to deal with the warts. But his heart is genuinely thankful first. 
Being a, neg- a negative person is a bad thing. It is a character flaw. It is sin. Being a thankful person is a good thing. It is the fruit of the Spirit. The Psalms, on 92.1 that Leah read, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. Maybe if you struggle with being negative, memorize that. And ask the Spirit to use it to prick your conscience every time you're choosing the bad. And instead, you choose the good. Thanksgiving is a choice that becomes a habit that forms your character. As God continues to form us as a church, let's make every effort to be thankful, to give thanks, so that we can become a church marked by the character of gratitude and graciousness. Now we're listening to Paul's prayer for the Corinthians. And through this prayer, God is speaking to our church. And he's calling our church to the discipline of thanksgiving. He's also calling our church to humility. Look at verse 5. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul identifies the grace that God has given the Corinthian church for which he's so thankful. Look at verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Now what's going on here is that Paul is remembering. Look at that middle verse, verse 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Paul is remembering that when he rolled into Corinth, and there were no Christians... Christianity as a religion had never been to Corinth. Paul comes into Corinth and he begins to preach the gospel. And when he does, there, there is a group of people who receive Christ. They believe the gospel. And as they do this, God confirms it by giving them an abundance of spiritual gifts. He pours out on them two particular types of gifts. Gifts of speech and gifts of knowledge. The gifts of speech, these are things like speaking in tongues and prophecy and teaching and preaching and evangelism. They were enriched in those gifts. They were abundantly supplied. They were wealthy in those types of gifts. They were also wealthy and enriched in gifts of knowledge. These are things like the discernment of spirits, wisdom, understanding, reason, or that special knowledge that comes from prophetic revelation. These were gifts that that group had in, in excess. So Paul says they are enriched. They are made rich in spiritual gifts. But here's where the call to humility comes in. This letter was originally written by Paul in Greek to Corinthians who read Greek. Okay, And there were two words that Paul could use for spiritual gifts. Both translated the same way into the English language. The first word is pneumaticon. And the next word is charismata. Now, in this passage, when Paul says in verse 7, so you're not lacking in any charismata, okay? Now, in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, I do not wish you to be ignorant concerning pneumaticon. He uses the other word for spiritual gifts, okay? Why does Paul... Now, pneumaticon is the Corinthians' favorite word because it means hopping around, going crazy like a charismatic. And that's the way they roll. That's what they like. These are spirit gifts. These are spiritual gifts. But charismata, it 
it's really literally these are grace gifts. So it's these are spiritual gifts. You didn't earn them. You did not deserve them. They're like grace. They're free of charge. You're a beggar on the street. God just willy-nilly decided to give them to you. You didn't get them because you deserve them better than the next guy. Having them doesn't make you any better than the next guy. That's the word Paul says you are enriched in something you didn't deserve. In something you couldn't earn. He deliberately chose not their favorite word for spiritual gifts because he's making a because the Corinthians struggle with arrogance. We'll see this in the letter time and time again. They are proud people. And so it is humbling for the Corinthians to learn to talk about the stuff that they excel in in terms of gifts. Not, I'm a gifted person, but I've been gifted by someone else. And there's more. Look at verse 7. You are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what Paul is saying here is that a basic orientation for, of life for a Christian is to eagerly wait for Jesus to come back. It's the last verse of the Bible. Come Lord Jesus. This is, this is a, we're not going to do this, but you could look at verses 1 to 9 and say it defines a Christian and it gives basic Christian characteristics. And one of these basic characteristics of a Christian is that they're straining forward like an Olympic sprinter for the finish line. They're straining and they're longing for the finish line. They're longing for Christ to come. But the, Paul has, a, again, just like with spiritual gifts, he has, a whole, he has a whole bunch of words he could use to describe the return of Christ. He could talk about it in lots of different ways, but he says the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know what he's saying to the Corinthians? Paul is saying that we are waiting for Christ to be fully revealed, to be publicly disclosed to the whole world. Now, jump to chapter 13, verse 9. If you have your Bible, scoot over a few pages to the right. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9. Because when Paul describes the return of Christ as the revealing, he's not only saying we long for the whole world to see him as we know him. In chapter 13, verse 9, he lets us in on the fact that he's saying more than that to the Corinthians. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, now that's another way that Paul refers to the return of Christ. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 9. That was verse 9. Now look down at verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. You see, for Paul, he's saying the Christian life is marked by the fact that our knowledge is incomplete. Right? We know in part. Now think about this. You've got incredible gifts of knowledge. Oh, by the way, you know in part. You see what he's doing? He's whittling away, even in his prayer of thanksgiving that they're reading, he's letting them try, he's trying to give them a different way of looking at life. They're looking at their gifts as something that makes them better. He's saying, your gifts are something that God has just given you. They're looking at their incredible ability to know things through special prophetic revelation and through scriptural knowledge. They're looking at it as something, Paul says, knowledge puffs up. 
But here he's saying in 1 Corinthians, in, in, this, in this passage we just looked at, chapter 13, 9 and 10 and 12, he's saying even as good as you've got it, even though you're better than all the other kids on the block with the gift of knowledge, it's impartial. It's incomplete. Eleven times in this letter, Paul asked the Corinthians, this, he, he asked this question eleven times, do you not know? <laughs> See, it's, it's like Scott standing before a judge and saying, but don't you know this part of the law, right? It doesn't, do you see he's going for the jugular? Scott doesn't, shouldn't do that normally, right? But Paul with the Corinthians, he's going for the jugular because the word know or knowledge is used more in 1 Corinthians than any other place in the Bible. It's, it's their thing. What, what I'm pointing out is that over and over, Paul is driving the point home that their knowledge is imperfect. What I'm pointing out is that the Christian life is marked by certain ambiguities. And if you don't know that, you'll be an arrogant Christian. God is calling our church to humility. Now, there is always sufficient light to take the next step of faith. Some people want to use the ambiguities to freeze them into inaction. There's always sufficient light to take the next step of faith. But the fact remains, as Christians, we long for the return of Christ. Partly because when he returns, the curtains are going to be flung open. And light's going to stream in. The sun is going to shine and Christ is going to be seen by all, including us, for who he truly is. And John, who knew God and wrote John's gospel in the apocalypse, in the book of, what is it called? Revelation. It's the same word in Greek as this here, the revealing. When John sees Christ, he falls on his face. And we long for Christ. And when Christ is revealed, he's going to be better than we ever imagined. And he's going to be what non-believers didn't believe. He's going to be revealed. And in the meantime, the Christian faith calls for a certain humility in which this brittle, cocksure, arrogant certainty about everything is out of place. Do you not know? We only know partially. We see through a glass dimly. That's chapter 8, verse 1. Knowledge inflates. In other words, when you think you've got it all, you're arrogant. The Corinthians struggled with pride. And their incredible knowledge about spiritual things, they forgot. That they still need some things revealed. Now as God continues to form us as a church, let's not be arrogant and let's not be dismissive of other Christians from different traditions. Let's wear our grace. Let's wear our riches with humility. Let's look at other Christians as Christians. Let's own where we are with humility. Let's wear our Anglican identity loosely. Let's not be ashamed of being Anglican or try to hide our tradition. Let's own it. But let's not take it so seriously that everybody else needs to become one of us. If they're not, then something's not quite right about them. There are many other Christian traditions that are rich with God's grace. Let's be humble. So we're listening to Paul's prayer for the Corinthians. And we're hearing God speak to us. And he's calling us to the habit of thanksgiving 
And he's calling us, the church of the incarnation, to an appropriate humility. But he's also calling us to confidence. Now, I know that sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Look with me at this passage. Paul called, starting in verse 1, by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, in every way you were enriched in Him. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed. Verse 7, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus. Verse 8, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. Ten times in nine verses, He either names Jesus or refers to Him by a pronoun. He is not humble about Jesus Christ. He's not ambiguous about the truth, about the total truth, about the whole truth, the big picture. In fact, by the end of verse 9, Paul has really done this incredible thing. He's painted this sweeping picture of history and of the Corinthian place in history. He's saying the church in Corinth, like our church, like all Christian churches, has been called by God to participate in a movement that will extend the destiny of Israel to the whole of creation. And that when God does that, He sets us apart for service. He sets us apart for service in Jesus. And in Jesus, God has lavished on us spiritual gifts that enable us to do this mission, to serve Jesus. And that when he did this to the Corinthians, they were not alone. They were part of a worldwide family of brothers and sisters. Look in verse um, 2 at the end of it. To all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord. See, Paul identifies a Christian as a person not only who strains toward the return of Christ. It's a person who calls on the name of Christ. Not another name, not another path up the mountain, but the name of Jesus. So on the one hand, Paul insists that our knowledge is partial, that it's marked by ambiguities. But on the other hand, he is confident that Jesus is the center of the world and the center of history. And you must have Jesus at the center of your life and your thoughts and your imagination. And if you can do that, if the Corinthians can learn to shift their perspective and to orient themselves around Christ at the center, at the center of their thoughts, at the center of their decisions, at the center of their choices and their imaginations, if the Corinthians can learn to do that, then all of the other complex issues that fill the pages of Corinthians, and they are complex, all of the other moral conundrums, if you can get Christ at the center, if you can see Christ as the clue, then all of those other things will work themselves out. So as God continues to form us as a church, we must be humble about our particular flavor of Christianity. Jesus didn't start the Anglican church. He started the church. We must not think that Christianity is limited to our little corner. Again, I'm not saying we downplay our distinctive identity, our specific views on worship or the Lord's Supper or baptism. 
But we must not become so arrogant and divisive that when it comes to other churches, they just need to learn. And then they'll be like us. And yet, when it comes to the heart of Christianity, we should be confident of this reality, of this outlook, that the Orthodox Christian view is right. And there is no other right view. Paul is weaving this fine line that Jesus is Israel's one true king. And he is the world's one true Lord. That in Jesus Christ, the one true God has become personally present in this world. And he is summoning us into his family. And on that issue, there is no ambiguity. So we're listening to Paul's prayer for the Corinthians. And as we listen to it, we are hearing God's voice. He's calling us to thankfulness. He's calling us to humility. He's calling us to confidence. And one other thing. He is calling us into deeper fellowship. Look at verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That phrase, fellowship of His Son, is ambiguous. (laughs) It could mean two things. I think it means both. On the one hand, it means that when you are called to be a Christian, you are called into fellowship with the Son. C.S. Lewis says, I pray because I can't not pray. And what he's getting at is that to be called to, called to be a Christian is to be called into an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. You are called to be a Christian is not just, oh, you get saved. Here's your get out of jail free card. Now go about your own. No, to be it's to be called into fellowship, into a deep intimacy. And when Paul Paul Biggie prayed, Master, you heard that in his voice. You felt like you shouldn't be in the room because this was an intimate conversation. When Craig prays, I hear that. The privilege of communing intimately with Jesus is the calling of Christians. On the other hand, the fellowship of the Son is not fellowship with the Son. It's the fellowship of those who are of the Son. You are called into this fellowship. He's telling the Corinthians to be called into Christ is to be called into a local church. Now, right after this, we're going to see they didn't get along. They didn't like each other. They had cliques. They had favorites. They were, it was a tense moment right now in Corinth. People were sitting over here who didn't want to sit over there. And so he's saying to them, you cannot have God for a father if you do not have the church for your mother. You can't. To be called into Christ is to be called into the fellowship of the Son. It's to be called into a local church, a local body of believers. And so we are called into fellowship with the Son. And we are called into the fellowship of the Son. Now fellowship, it means far more than a bunch of people showing up and smiling at each other with cookies and coffee. That is not even close. We name these things fellowship halls because we drink punch in them. And we have hors d'oeuvres with our Christian friends. Nothing could be farther from the truth. 
What a, what a terrible mistake for a church to make to designate a location as the place where we fellowship. As if you can limit it to that. As in the rest of your week is disconnected from that. The fellowship that we experience is so fundamental to what it means to be a Christian that Paul can define Christianity in terms of this. He can use that as the suitcase that wraps up everything it means to be a Christian, to be called into a fellowship, the fellowship of the Son. The idea is that we all share in the status of being in Christ. Ben Velker is in Christ, and I am in Christ, and so he and I are connected by this incredibly intimate relationship to Christ at the center. And so we have this fellowship of our in Christness, the status of being in Christ, of being shareholders with Christ. Look, Paul is saying to be in the church, and this was true throughout the early church, to be in the church is to be summoned to a close and even sacrificial relationship with people that you might not even pick to be friends with if you were walking down the street. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free. People of different social classes, people with whom you might not, you might ordinarily have nothing in common. You are called, look around this room, this is what I love about it, we have to look, look at this room, we are called to one another. We are called into fellowship with one another. Luther and I are called into fellowship. We are called into an intimate, even sacrificial way of relating to one another. Now, neither here nor anywhere else in Scripture can you find a picture of a Lone Ranger Christian. In the Bible, there is no picture of a Christian apart from a local church. He doesn't exist. I mean, think about the earlier part of this prayer, how the Corinthians were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge and how they were not lacking in any spiritual gift. You are lacking in many spiritual gifts, but we cannot, we are not lacking. That's his point. As a group, you lack nothing, but as individuals, holy cow. No individual Christian can claim you cannot make it on your own. You were not meant to make it on your own. You are not equipped to make it on your own. To be a Christian is to be called to live deeply and intimately in fellowship with Jesus and with the local church. May God grant that we will be a church marked by thanksgiving and humility and confidence, and intimate fellowship with Christ and with one another. Let's pray.